All right, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 17, and uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 12, where we left off the last time. But we were talking a little bit about uh, verse 11. Uh, you know, the people of Berea were much nobler than those in Thessalonica, and that they searched the Scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. We need Bereans today. A Berean call. Like I said, we talk a lot about revival. And I do believe we need revival. But we need revival for the Word of God. We'll never have revival until we get back to the Word of God. You know. I think often when we think of revivals, and I don't know about you, maybe sitting here or some of you certainly listening by radio, when I was a kid, when we would hear revivals, we always thought of you know the old town camp meetings and you know, and there's nothing wrong with those, but they were pretty emotional things. Pretty emotional. And I was kind of uh, of the Pentecostal persuasion back in my younger days. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot of Bible being preached, to be honest with you. A lot of preaching, wasn't a whole lot of teaching going on. And so we were always trying by superficial means to bring about that which is supernatural. And revival is like, can you get people enthused? Oh, yeah. You get somebody worked up with music. You know, especially if you're as old as I am and you start playing some of that old Southern gospel stuff. Yeah, man. I like that stuff. You know, the Statler Brothers and, you know, the Staples thing. I mean, there's all, there's all, I could name them all. There's so many of them, you know. But, uh, yeah, you can get worked up with that. But it's much better to be stirred by the Word of God because it's so much more permanent. It brings about such more lasting results, you know. Because often we would walk out of those revivals feeling energized for about a day and a half maybe. If, if it was a good meeting, maybe two days. And then we would be praying for another revival. But the people in Berea were different. These were different. These people searched the scriptures to see whether those things were so. Once again, I don't want to come across as a pessimist, or a, but there seems to be very few Bereans today within the body of Christ. And the church of Jesus Christ, when you look at it globally, and I mean this globally, I don't mean any particular denomination, but when I read headlines and I see all the things that they give themselves to and that they are just allowing into the body of Christ. It almost seems like we have turned our back on the Word of God, at least in practice, you see, at least in principle and practice, in-depth study of the Word of God has to be cultivated. And we're so far from that now. And people have went decades now really, without it, that often we don't see, you know, large amounts of people who are hungry for it until we begin to cultivate it. You know, we sow the seed, you know, we want to sow the seed. Once you get into, and I'll never forget my first taste of Bible teaching was a man by the name of Gillette Doggett. I was, what, 23 at the time. Didn't even have a lot of church experience, but most of my church experience had been around, you know, a lot of shouting and those type of things. And not that that's always bad. I'm not certainly suggesting that, but that was a steady diet of it. 
that I never forget when I first sat down with that tape. And I, and I remember turning on the cassette player and kids listening to this broadcast going, Dad, what's a cassette? Yeah, it's, it's an old ask your father about it. He probably has some in the attic. But we turned on the cassette, you know, and all of a sudden here was this guy. And he was just going through the scriptures. And I had never heard that before. And it just absolutely mesmerized. I just stayed glued to it. And I just wanted to hear more and more and more. I was so blessed many, many, many years later to run into him at a pastor's conference. And when he asked me how I wound up in the ministry, I said, because of you. It was such a great moment. Because really, he was the one who gave me my start as far as teaching me the Word of God. You know, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, I have taught you so that you in turn will be able also to teach other men who are worthy also. That's the purpose of teaching. We teach, and then you teach, and then you pass it along, you know. Be a Berean. It's important to dig in there, to dig through the Word of God, to sift those things, to find out whether these things are so. So that's what they did. And, and I love verse 12 because not only did they do that, the Thessalonians, and of course later on Paul would write to the Thessalonian church there in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, and he would even encourage them to prove all things and hold fast that which is true, that which is good. Prove it. So often the church doesn't do that anymore. You see that? I see it all the time. They'll swallow any kind of doctrine and it just comes along and they don't get into the word. They don't prove what is true. And so a lot of times they're led astray. So, but he encouraged them, you know, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Therefore, verse 12, he said, the Bereans were much nobler than those in Thessalonica and they searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. Also of honorable women, which were Greeks and of men, not a few. There was a bunch of them, was Paul saying. A whole bunch of them believed. Why? Because of the therefore. You see that? Every time it says therefore, he's going, the reason for this is because of what I just said. And what he just said was that they searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. You see that? Therefore they believed. Why? Because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's why. That's why it's important. People say, ah, oh, Doug, you, you know, you stress it too much. You too, you too much. You know, it's all about the word. You can't even talk. I had a guy tell me, you can't even talk without quoting scripture. I said, well, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can see you're doing it again. And I'm going, I don't know how else to be. I don't know how else to be. And frankly, I wouldn't want to be any other way. It's the Word of God that directs my life. It's the Word of God that keeps me steadfast. Oh, you know, when we get into trouble, absolutely, it's the Word of God that comes to my rescue. God speaks to me through it. You know, therefore they believed because they searched the Scriptures. They were in it. You want to see people get saved? Get them in the Word. Get them in the Word. I have no doubt that, these, that the Bereans, when they were listening to Paul, who was a long-winded preacher. A lot of people don't know that. He was. 
I can prove it to you. Don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it for you. It's in Acts 20, verse 9. We're going to get to it. And it says, And there sat in a window a certain young man by the name of Eutychus, or Eutychus, however you want to pronounce it, being, falling asleep into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with a sleep and fell down from the window aloft and was taken up dead. Of course, Paul raised him from the dead. My only point being is Paul preached long. And the other part says he preached long into midnight. But they sat there. Why? Because they loved the Word of God. It was their love for the Word is what kept them in the seat. You know, in the Jewish church, a lot of Gentiles, you guys don't know this, that in the Jewish church, especially during this particular time, it was the pastor or the rabbi who sat. It was the congregation that stood. And they did that sometimes for six hours. And all they did was read the Torah. Just read it. Because their love for the Word. They had a love for the Word. You know. They didn't just take Paul's word for it. They searched the Scriptures. They went through it. They poured over it. Over and over. Just to make sure that these things were so. And when they confirmed it, they believed it. And that's very, very cool. Look at verse 13. But then, but when, excuse me, the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus bowed there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timothy, or Timotheus, for to come to him with all speed they departed. And so, these Jews in Thessalonica, when they heard that the word was being preached in Berea, these were the unbelieving Jews. They got ticked off. And they came all the way down to Berea to start a ruckus. Anytime people see somebody getting into the word of God, there's always, the enemy is always going to work through those who try to ridicule you for such things. I remember early on in my, in my young life in the Lord, I had such a hunger for the Bible. And I'm not saying that everybody gets that same type of hunger for it, because the Lord was obviously taking me into a teaching ministry. So I, 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 maybe I went, you know, in some people's eyes, overboard. Why? Because I would get up in the morning and literally... I had a radio job, so I was on the air, but it was nothing for me to get up and I would start studying, and I might still be sitting there come the next morning. That was commonplace for me. And I remember my mother, who loves me dearly and still does, uh, became very concerned of my overindulgence into the Word of God. You know, I was getting carried away, you see. And... It was funny how many people came to me, and they, and they meant well, you know, but they were trying to slow me down, you know, hey, uh, much learning will make thee mad, you know, you got you to slow down on that stuff. This is, of course, a little bit different. These people were actually stirring up trouble. They, they didn't want it, but the enemy will use anybody, even somebody who loves you, even somebody who means well. Remember Peter, remember the Lord, you know, never think that that can't happen. It happens. Remember, Jesus was talking about going to the cross, and Peter said, Far be it from thee, Lord. And Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. 
For thou savorest not the things of God, but the things of men. So Peter, and just before that, he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, and he went, yeah. Jesus said, wow, God gave this to you. Peter was probably proud. All of a sudden, he went from that to opening his mouth and being the spokesperson for Satan himself. You know, that'll, that, that ought to give you some room to, to think about there. You know, it's crazy. But these guys, that's what they did. They heard that the word was being preached in Berea, and the, and this, and the enemy don't like it. When the word of God's being taught, when people are learning, when they're, when they're absorbing doctrine, because listen, you can preach all day long, and people never come to real maturity. You know that, right? It is the teaching of the Word of God. It is doctrine that brings about maturity. And that's what the enemy doesn't like. I was reading one of my old notes uh, on one of my messages and, uh, from years ago. And I had made the comment that if, as long as you stay off of your calling, the enemy doesn't care what else you do for God. You can do all kinds of things for the Lord. You can run yourself ragged for Jesus. As long as you're not doing that one thing that he's called you to do, stay focused. Stay focused. And you'll be blessed for it. Not by, not that God, not, listen to me. You'll be blessed because you're doing what God's called you to do. But you can do all kinds of things, you know, and not really be doing. So people can be used by the enemy. It, it happens all the time. Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Paul's spirit, the word here in the Greek is the word, it means to provoke. He was provoked in the spirit when he saw that this city was totally given to idolatry. I mean, Athens was a place, think of... Think of Las Vegas on steroids, okay? Only in a religious sense and in a very bad religious sense. So there was all kinds of idolatry. And I don't mean just the worship of idols, but there was actual licentiousness on the streets. And the, the, this provoked him. It, and it really reminded me of Lot. You remember the story of Lot. The Bible says that he was vexed day by day because of their evil deeds. You know, you, you look around at our world, gang, and not much has changed. Stuff bothers me when I see it. You know, the sexuality that is so rampant in our society anymore. I mean, they parade it down the streets. They have special parades for, for just all kinds of debauchery. And I was watching a thing the other day. It was on YouTube. And here was this little boy who was dressed up like a little girl he couldn't have been more than nine or ten years old, and he's doing these most outrageous gyrations of a sexual nature in the middle of the street with all these people gathered around him, cheering him on. Of course, they're all dressed as drag queens, and his parents were sitting there encouraging him. That stuff vexes me sore. It pricks me in my spirit. It stirs my spirit when I see that. This is what Paul saw. His spirit was stirred when he saw it. It ought to bother him. And it did bother him. Therefore, verse 17. Always make note of the therefores. 
Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Because Paul's spirit was stirred, because he was provoked by the abundance of idolatry was there, by the things that he was seeing, he didn't say, let's set up a mission. Let's come up with a program to reach these guys. You know, let's, let's reach into their culture and let's, let's, let's come up with a whole new side. That's not what he did. What Paul did was he went to the synagogue. And he began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then he preached it to the devout people. He preached it to anybody who would listen, even in the marketplace, as to those who would come and hear him. We live in a time, and so often, we think that we live in an extraordinary time. We, we, it is extraordinary in many ways. But it's not different in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, it's very much the way it's always been. And that is, sin is still sin. It's still rampant. It's still rubbed in our face. It's still in the streets. That's why Lot had to put up with it. That's why it has been with us all this time. And it's why Jesus came. It's why he came. But the answer has always been the same. Regardless of how bad it is, regardless of how repulsive it is, the answer is still Jesus. The answer is still the gospel. And how did Paul do it? He just went and preached. He went to those who he thought he could, that would listen. Why? Because it's only those who have come to knowledge of Jesus Christ, who have received the good news, those who have been born again. You know, you, you want to rid this world of abortion? I know I do. Teach the word of God. You want to rid the world of alcoholism and addictions? Teach the Word of God. You see, the answer is right in front of you. You've got that book. It's the most powerful instrument that God has ever laid on mankind. We hold it in our hand. We just don't know how powerful it is. The Word of God is alive and quick and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It can do what nothing else can. When a person in, you know, is engulfed in the Word of God, he will see the gospel and he will be changed by the gospel. That's how you do it. Oh, you can come up with a AAA plan or whatever they call that, you know. I've talked with many of those guys, you know. They, their desire is to get everybody who's an alcoholic not to be one. I said, yeah, that's great, you know. So he goes to hell sober. Hmm. Doesn't sound like much of a trade-off to me. Matter of fact, the Bible actually says, give strong drink unto him who's ready to perish. Even God's more merciful than that. At least if he's going to suffer some pain, let him kill it. But you see, that's crazy. It's just, we, we think in temporal terms. We think that if I just, you know, if I just get somebody sober. No, if you get somebody saved, then he will become sober. It's putting the cart before the horse. We do it all the time. As a society, as a church, we do it. You look at that program. They call it a 12-step program. 
and then look at what, how they define God. It's a noun. You know what a noun is, right? It's a person, place, or thing. Whatever your higher power is. You're, you're not going to lead anybody to Jesus with that. I've known too many people in it. I'm not saying, do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying it doesn't help people. It's not what I said. I think it gets a lot of people sober. What it doesn't do is get a lot of people on their way to heaven. So they just wind up going to hell as a sober man. Doesn't seem like much of a trade-off. That's my point. Paul the apostle was more concerned with the soul. God is more concerned with the soul. God is concerned. Why? Because he loves you. He cares about us. It's not God's will, the Bible says, that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Jesus is the answer. Paul saw it. He knew it. Therefore, he went into the synagogue and disputed with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met him. He preached the gospel. That's what he did. Look at verse 18. Then certain philosophers up the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him. I bet that was an interesting encounter. And some of them said, what will this babbler say? I like the word babbler there. In the Greek, it actually means seed picker or cotton picker. Not sure what that meant. <laughs> you know, I know what a nitpicker is, but a seed picker or cotton picker, that's really what it meant. So in the Greek, but they, of course, translated babbler. What's this babbler going to say? Others said, he seemed to be a center forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. So what was he preaching? He preached Jesus and the resurrection. The Epicureans are an interesting bunch. They were followers of Epicurus, who was a philosopher that lived somewhere between 324 and 271 B.C. At this particular time, we're looking at the year about 53 A.D. So it's been about 300 years at the time of Paul that Epicurus has been dead. His philosophy was that he believed that the ultimate good was pleasure. This is what he taught and believed. But he defined what he meant by that. And Epicurus taught and believed that the simpler your life was the more pleasure you would be able to experience. And so he strove to live a life that was totally unencumbered by things. Not, not that he was a total, you know, don't give me any material stuff, but, but keep it at a minimum is what he taught his followers. So they would go about to have less. And I got to admit, it's not a bad idea. Because I can tell you from personal experience, the more junk you have, the more responsibility you've got. One of the greatest burdens off of my back was when I sold my business. Now, maybe I'm just one of those business guys that couldn't wait to get out of it, but I'd been doing it for 20 years, and I was tired of it. Why? It's an enormous responsibility. People go, well, I'd love to be an entrepreneur. I'm going, yeah, well, maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. <laughs> it has its blessings, and it has its, it's got the pros and cons. Anybody that's ever done it knows it does. Responsibilities on both sides of that. But the more you have, the more responsibility and the less pleasure you would. This is what Epicurus taught and believed. By this particular time, though, that philosophy had degenerated. 
especially those who called themselves Epicureans. Because now what they believed was that in life, the pursuit of pleasure was the ultimate goal. Not that, not that decreasing life would produce pleasure, but that living life as a pleasurable sense is what you really were seeking after. So what did they do? This led and infiltrated into the Greek culture so that when you come to this period of time, you see them having these huge banquets. And even Paul will speak about this, uh, I believe it's in the book of Galatians, where he says, you know, talks about banqueting. Well, that's because he had observed it. And what they would do is they would sit for one course meal, and the whole idea behind this first course in the meal was to chew slowly, but savor every little flavor, and eat as much as you could until you couldn't eat no more. And then once you got to that point where you go, I'm going to throw up. That's exactly what they would do. They would go out and they would regurgitate and then they would wipe themselves off, put a little perfume on, and then they'd go in for course two. And some of these courses would run all night. And so they would hold these orgies and they would do, this was what the Epicureans, this is how they lived. And so they would do this and actually, I remember years ago, maybe some of you remember, but back when I actually watched it, which was probably BC days, there was a skit on by SNL, Saturday Night Live, where they showed these guys actually going out to the vomitorium and they would <laughs> shove a stick there. But a lot of it was true. I mean, they were laughing about it, but it was actual truth in that. This was the Epicureans. Now the Stoics on the other hand. Stoics were a different sort, and we, we often use that term in conjunction with people. We say, well, he was very stoic, you see. What they believed was that they, they, didn't, they didn't believe that, how to put this, they believed that the ultimate good was to be totally unfeeling, to separate themselves from any emotion. This is what they believed. So they didn't want to experience anything like pain, pleasure of any sort. They didn't want to, and, and this is in conjunction with anything, love, you, you name it, hate. They, they, didn't, they wanted to have no emotion. So they would work towards this in a psychological sense. They would work towards not having any emotional response to anything. And so they would have no, you know, if somebody died, they would just go, hmm. You know, somebody got married or something happy, they kid, hmm. They would just, they didn't want to have any, so we call that being stoic. So even today, when somebody seems to be emotionless, we call them stoic, okay? But these were a real group of people. But these were the two philosophies that Paul is battling with. You know, one who's just, when you go to the Epicureans, because what happened to those guys was that they, 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 they had digressed so much that it actually led them into pantheism, which was the worship of everything. And the Stoics, they progressed so much that it led them into atheism. So this two philosophies, this is what Paul's dealing with. Look at verse 19. And they took him and brought him unto Aragopas, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were uh, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. I think it's interesting. 
that there are certain cities in the world, and we have some in the United States, that are not unlike the Athenians, in that they seek to hear or to see some new thing. And some of these places, I always found it interesting that they'll have the biggest church of every denomination you could possibly imagine. We got one here in Ohio. It's just always I found that odd. There's the largest Presbyterian church, you know, in the United States there. There's the largest vineyard in the church there. There's, I couldn't name them all. They got like all these number ones, you know, they're all huge, huge, you know, the biggest Nazarene church. Um, I, it's just strange to me. But there's cities like that, and they just, they want to hear everything, but there's all kinds of other weird and strange doctrines there. I'm not saying that those denominations I mentioned were, but there's a lot of other ones. But they're kind of like the Athens, you know. That's what they wanted. They wanted to hear or see some new thing. Verse 22, then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, you men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. Now, it's an interesting statement. Mars Hill There in Athens, there's a, there's, up, up on top of the hills, there's, there's the Pantheon up there. You come down the hill a little bit, this is where Mars Hill was at. And there's an outcropping there of rocks called the Stone of Impudence. And this is where anybody who had a new teaching, a new thing that he wanted to preach, this is where they would go. And all the people who were in the know, who wanted to know some new thing, this is where they would go and they would gather. This is where Paul's at. Paul is more than likely sitting or standing on this rock of impudence when he's addressing these guys. So they would go there to hear these new fangled ideas. And so they would just let anybody do it. So Paul takes advantage of that. Now, when he says here that you men, he said, you are too superstitious. This is one of the few times in the uh, 1611, which is what I used, that I would, uh, I think it's an unfortunate translation. Because in the Greek, it really doesn't mean that. I don't know why they decided to use that term. What it actually means is religious. Maybe some of your translations say that, okay? Actually, what Paul said to them was that, I see that you're very religious. He didn't say you're too superstitious. I mean, you're not going to get very far with a group of men when you start off your, your, your talk by insulting them, you understand, because that would have been an insult even to them. Even now, we get mad when people talk about us as Christians as being superstitious. We take that as a slur. Not a, not, it's not a compliment. So Paul said, I see that you are very religious, which they were. How could he tell? By all the idols that he saw, they were everywhere. I mean, they were literally on every block, on every corner. There was idols everywhere and temples everywhere. Verse 23, he says, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Whom therefore, and if you're taking note, underline this, whom ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. I want to address the whole issue of Paul observing their devotions. 
as he walked through the streets, there's no doubt that Paul would observe people venerating these idols in public. They would do that. They would go up and they would bow down. They would, they would come and they would, they would kiss their feet. They would, they would do all these venerations, these devotions. He says, as I came through, I saw your devotions. You're very religious. It's not unlike today, gang. There's many Christian churches that still use icons and statues and paintings and relics. And you go down to Mexico and you watch some of the Catholic church and they, you know, they have a, pre a procession that goes you know, for miles and they're carrying these icons and people are weeping and they're, they're praying to these things and they're kissing these little statues' feet. And it's no different. It's no different. To watch people do that. When I worked in a prison system many, many years ago, we had a large contingency of Muslims and it was strange they would carry that little rug around with them, you know? And they would wash their feet before they would roll their little rug out, of course, point it towards the east, and they'd do that five times a day. Five times a day, got to carry a little rug around, you know, and do everything. So that kind of veneration of things, that it's just Paul addressed it. He's going, wow, you guys are extremely religious, and they were. But he notes that they had this one altar to the unknown God. And he says, this one God you ignorantly worship, I want to declare him unto you. Because they worshiped a God of everything. I mean literally anything you could imagine. They had a God of love, a God of war, a God of hate, a God of grapes. Literally, a God of wine. I mean, they had a God for everything. You talk about pantheism. It was run amok. They had a, and so, some guy came up with it, an idol maker. He goes, you know what? We might, we might actually tick off a, a God that we don't even know. And we don't, God knows we don't want his wrath coming down on us because we don't even know. So maybe we better make an altar to this guy. And, and, and we better actually give some worship to it just in case. You know, we don't want to get wrathified by a technicality. You know, we don't want to do that. We don't want to get that stuff coming down on us for that. So that's what they did. Actually had an altar made to this unknown God. And so like Paul says, he goes, it's this God whom you ignorantly worship that I want to talk to you about. I want to tell you about him. Many people today still worship God ignorantly. They still do it. You know, the Bible tells us very clearly. John 4, 24, when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, he said, God is a spirit. And those that worship him must worship him in truth and in spirit. We can't come to God, as Paul's going to point out clearly, we can't come to God by the works of our hands or by some other way or by the worship of icons and idols and pictures and those type of things to enhance. He's going, you can't do that because God is not made of those things. 
But there's many people today who still do this stuff. And they, they're still worshiping God. Oh, they believe in God. But they don't worship God. They're, they're worshiping Him, unfortunately, in ignorance. Verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Like I told you before, Athens was full of temples. They're all over the place, and some of them are still there to this day. The ruins are still in pretty good shape. They're still there. But Paul lays this on them, that God is not a dweller in, in, in houses that are made by hands. He doesn't dwell in those things. Solomon told us the same thing when he built the temple. And he said, oh Lord, you know, the universe is your dwelling place. At best, you know, all we do is build these places so that we can come as a collective, you know, and worship God together. But God doesn't dwell here. Nothing can contain God. God is everywhere. God's dwelling place is the universe. God is everywhere, literally. But so often we have just quite the opposite thought about God. But we spend an enormous amount of time and effort in making these temples. All you got to do is look around. You go over to Europe, and when we were over there, we were in some pretty nice cathedral. One, it was just amazing. They are amazing. I'm telling you, they are amazing. Wow. And I don't know whether it's just my Jewishness, but I, you know, of course, I'm looking at those things. I'm going, man, I wonder how much that cost, you know? I am going, you know, that's a lot of money there, you know? And you're talking stuff that was built in the 13th century. I'm going, these poor peasants, you know, these guys were making like a half a pence a month. I wonder how many of those they had to collect to build this thing, you see. I think about stuff like that. Maybe I'm just wrong. I don't know. But it, it bothers me, you know. And then we come down to our modern time, and we're still doing it. We're still doing it. I remember a guy, um, I think it's okay if I mention his name. His name was Bob Coy, pastor in an enormous Calvary Chapel. That church had grown from a handful of people. Started off in the uh, sanctuary of a mortuary. <laughs> I loved Bob's story, Bob. He had about 30 people meeting there every Sunday. And he did that for like two or three years, and he got pretty discouraged. Wasn't growing, wasn't doing anything. So he calls Odin Fong up, and Odin was our guy who was the outreach minister and kind of was in charge of the outreaches, you know. And he tells Odin, he goes, hey, he said, do you think you got anybody that might want to come down here to Florida and take this, this little band of people that are here? And he goes, why? He goes, yeah, I'm thinking, because he was from Vegas. He goes, I think I'm going to go back to Vegas, and, you know, go back and help out at the old church, you know. And He goes, so you're just going to give up? He's going, well, no, I'm not really giving up. I think God's maybe calling it. He goes, well, I'll be honest with you, bro. He said, I got a list as long as my arm of pastors that would be more than willing to come down there and take that. And he went, really? You, really? You got that? You, I mean, he goes, oh, yeah, that won't be no problem. I could probably have somebody there in no time. He goes, well, let me think about it. <laughs> so he re-prayed about that one. 
And of course, it wasn't too many years later, that church was 14,000 people. Huge. Three campuses, still is. Still is, you know. And, um, but, they got into this situation where they, they, they didn't have a building, okay? And they had to build one. And, you know, in our upbringing, and, and I know that you know that I'm, I'm originally from Calvary Chapel and I pastored one for years. We're not much about asking for money. We just don't do it, you know. Kind of got a philosophy that we go by that where God guides, God provides, you know. God really wants it there. It's his building. We figure he'll make a way to pay for it. Well, <laughs> Bob decided that, well, they needed $14 million. I believe that was the number. Might have been more than that. But I remember that he decided he was going to do the pledge thing. Never forget it. He was going to go pledging, you know. Here, here's a card. How much are you going to pledge to give? And against the advice of just about every pastor he probably knew, it's like, what are you doing? We don't, we don't do that. Why would you ask somebody to give presumably, you know, presumptuously? And he ignored it. And on the pledges, he raised, a, I think it was like $190 million. A lot of, lot of, lot of denarii, right? a lot of cash, you know. But what, see, what, what's promised and then what actually comes in is usually quite a bit different. And it was very, 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 very different. Uh, they did build their new building, which they're, uh, they're in, have been for years. But he had to. I remember him standing at the pastor's conference and actually apologizing to everybody for even getting into that kind of a thing because it was a miserable, you know, the pledge was a miserable failure. Why? Because he had a whole lot of people said, yeah, brother, that's what we'll do. And then when it come time to write that check, they were like, nowhere to be found. <laughs> you know, and that's why it's bad to do that kind of thing. But they put all this money into these buildings, you see. My only point is, is that $14 million. I mean, come on. You know, we, we, we want to have the best facility. There's nothing wrong with having a facility. Don't ask me. I love a place that's air-conditioned. I love padded seats. I really do. You know, and that's why we tie. That's why we give. That's why we want to do those things because somebody's got to pay for the electric. It's just the way it is. It's ministry. Yeah, we like these things, but we put a lot of stock in it is my point. And they were no different at that time. And there's people who believe that the nicer the building, the more God dwells there, you see. You know, they come in, we, they see this beautiful stained glass that I've got behind me. And it is beautiful. I love this picture. This is a great one. But they come in and they see them and they go, oh, God must surely dwell in this place. <laughs> go on, listen. That stained glass is beautiful, but it, it doesn't mean God is dwelling any more here than he is anywhere else, you know. But we're guilty of that, man. And this is what Paul was pointing out to them. God does not dwell in houses made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands. Verse 25. And look at this. And take note of this. As though he needed anything. Now think about that one. Seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. He says, neither is he worshipped with, with men's hands as though he needed anything. <laughs> what are you going to give to God? that he possibly would need. What could we possibly give to God that he would need? 
And yet, I've heard testimony after testimony of people talking like when they gave their life to the Lord, like they did God a favor. And I'm going, listen to me, brother. And I'm talking to you on the authority of the Word of God. When I gave my life over to Jesus Christ and, and, and subjected myself to His Lordship, I was the one who benefited, not Him. He got the short end of that stick, I'm telling you. And I'm glad because I am the beneficiary and he is the benefactor. But we can't give anything. You're not going to do him a favor. God has everything. God has everything. Paul points this out to them. He doesn't dwell in houses made with hands. He doesn't need a house. His dwelling place, as Solomon said, is the universe. You can't give him something that he possibly would need. God doesn't need anything. He wants a relationship but he doesn't need it. And that's important. God has bestowed his grace upon us, but he doesn't have to do it, and he doesn't need to do it. He does it because he's God. That's part of his nature. But to think that we could do anything that he needs, Paul says that's a fallacy. It's false. We need to not do that. You know, so often we like to venerate people who have given things to God, who do things for the Lord. You know, well, hallelujah to you, you know. As though God needed it. God did not need it. What we do for the Lord is a response to what God has already given. That's really what it is. In its so simplest forms, we call it an attitude of gratitude. We do things for the Lord because we are so thankful that God has been so generous and so gracious to us constantly, abundantly, above all that we could ever hope for, pouring his blessing out upon my life, making my life so much sweeter than it, than it should be, that I want to give to the Lord. I want to say thank you. I want to. Do I have to? No. No. It's a get to, not a have to. But I want to. But so often we can put the cart before the horse and we start thinking that if I do that, you see, God's going to bless me. I've been to services and back in so many years ago, you know, and guys would be playing, oh, lift your hands higher, you know. Just do it higher and sing out of the praises and you're going to get a blessing tonight. I'm going, brother, God was blessing me before I ever stepped into this place. I brought God into this place with me. I didn't come here to meet him. He walked in the front door with me. Why? Because he dwells in me. He dwells in you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He is with you always, Jesus said, even until the ends of the earth. And yet we have this mindset that I'm going to go there and meet God. Brother, if you ain't talking to him right now, you probably never have. And that's fixable. God is with us. We were saying that song, God is for us, he is on our side. He is, but he's with you. We do the things in response to God. He's the initiator. We are the receptors. We respond to that, you know? It's really a simple equation, but it's one that can really get messed up if we don't really think about it because it's so easy. I mean, look at, all the, look at the ways, and I'll move on after this. 
Look at the ways in which we are constantly being motivated. In most churches, gang, what is preached from the pulpit is what your responsibility is to God. That's mostly what we hear. In most churches, it is what you ought to be doing for the Lord, what you ought to be giving to God. This is, unfortunately, the bulk of what is preached today. And they go about great lengths to motivate you into that. They write whole books about it. Remember the prayer of Jabez? Come on, man. You know some of you bought it. You ain't, you ain't kidding me at all. Think about that. You know, here's your 30-day plan. Pray this every day. And God will expand your borders. God's going to bless you if you do this. That's what the underlying... I never forget reading that the first time I was on radio. And I just... I had to take a week just to, to, to calm down before I got on the air because I knew I was going to offend a lot of people. But there's been so many books written on fasting. If you just fast, and you know, go, go on a two-week two fast. You just fast for two weeks and, and, and God will give you visions, you see. Go on, brother, listen. You're trying to get a response from God. That's when we do those things, when we, when we fall for that. What we're being told is that if I do this, then God will respond to me. You see that? God will respond. No, 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 no. God is the initiator. We respond to him. That's the way it always has been. It's the way it always will be. But yet, in mankind's feeble attempt, even within the church, we often lose sight of that. And so we go about trying to please God, trying to gain his approval, trying to gain his blessing, when you know what? You are approved. You know what? In Jesus, you are blessed. You are everything to him. In Christ, it is all yea and amen. This is what the Bible tells us. So we respond to that. It's an attitude of gratitude. I'm grateful that Jesus has done everything for me. I'm great. Man, I am so grateful for all that he's done. But they do. They, they try to get us to do more and more and more. Verse 26, but Jesus really is the one who's done it all. And he has made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times and hath appointed the bounds of their habitation. If there's one verse that ought to put to rest prejudice of any sort as far as race is concerned, this is it. He has made all men of the same blood. I remember the first time I read that as a young Christian, and i got to be honest, I had a lot of uh, prejudices in me, and I don't even know why, uh, looking back on it, because I really wasn't raised around it. Uh, I don't really know what caused that in me, but I was. And I remember the first time I read that. He is, what do you mean he's created all men of the same blood? He's created all men of the same blood. Isn't it interesting that regardless of what the color is on the outside, if you need a blood transfusion, you can get it from anybody. Why? Because he has created all men of the same blood and has set the boundaries of their habitation. There's no big eyes or little U's. And of course, in Jesus, we know that there's neither Greek nor Jew nor Scythian nor barbarian, but we are all in Christ. We are all in him. We are all one in the Lord. And I love that. So verse 27, that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. And so Paul's 
telling these guys, look, God doesn't dwell in houses made with hands. He doesn't, he's not worship with the works of men's hands. You know, and he wants those. You know, he's the giver of all things, the giver of life. And that we should seek after the Lord. If happily, he says that they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. I heard it said one time that some people find the Lord sheerly on a maybe, you know. <laughs> and what was meant by that, and it reminded me of the story of Jonah, is that there are people who really have no promise. They don't know the word. You know, they're kind of like, well, maybe God is there, possibly. Maybe, maybe he will be merciful to us. I mean, think about the story of Jonah for a moment. See if I can make my point. Jonah was the original reluctant prophet. I mean, he, uh, he didn't want to go. And then after he got there, he wasn't very good, okay? He certainly was no Billy Graham. He didn't go there. With, <laughs> there, there was no message of repentance. There was no message of salvation. There was no message of hope. Pretty much, he went to Nineveh and he goes, yeah, 40 days from now, you're all dead. And he went up on the hill to watch the fireworks. That's what he did. And he wasn't budging from that. He was like, just kill them all and let God sort them out. He didn't give these people any hope. You know, I love that guy. You know, that is such a great story. But anyway, getting back to my point. But what did the people do? Even though they had no message of salvation, they had nothing, they had no message of repentance. You know, he basically said, yeah, you're toast. You know, and you deserve everything you're getting. I'll be up on the hill when, it's, when they get, you know, I'll bring the dustpan, you know. I mean, that was basically what he said. But what did they do? The Bible tells us that the people repented in sackcloth and ashes. And then they said, if perhaps the Lord will have mercy on if perhaps, maybe. They didn't really know him. And they certainly couldn't turn to Jonah to get any direction because he pretty much didn't want, he just wanted to kill them all, you know. There's, now, that's a prophet of doom, <laughs> you know. I've heard people say, sometimes your preaching's kind of wrong. going, man, you ought to listen to Jonah then. You know, I'm a pussycat compared to that guy, man. I mean, he just, he just came down on them hard, you know. But what's what Paul's talking about? He goes, you know, sometimes that even with a maybe, perhaps, if they will feel after him and they, they should seek after the Lord and find him, even though he be not far from every one of us. God is not far from us. He's not far from you. He's right here. But he's right there. You know, so often we, we, we come to the church, and, and I realize I do like being in the sanctuary when I teach, and I have a reason for that. Because I know that people have a, a, you know, as much as I probably shouldn't say it, there is a slight veneration. There's a respect. Let me, let me change that word. There's a respect. And, and I like that. I think that sometimes, especially in the day and time we're living, they can be too casual. Now, you know, I mean, casual, and when I say casual, I'm not talking about your apparel. Because some people are probably looking at me going, well, you're wearing shorts. Now, I'm not talking about apparel. I'm talking about in our attitude. It's, it's our attitude, because God does not care what you wear. You know, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. He doesn't care about that. But, there, you know, if we're just sitting around with the, with the lattes, 
you know, every, I don't know. I just, it just seems to be a little disrespectful to me. But that's just, that's just me, you know. I just, so these guys would, would have, you know, seek after the Lord that they might find him. But God dwells here as much as he dwells down the street. Now, sometimes, and my point was, was that sometimes we'll walk by a bar and we'll think that God has forsaken that place, that God would never be there. You know? But God is just as much in that bar as he is here. Nobody wants to hear that, but it's the truth. Why? Because God is everywhere. God is omniscient. He's, he's omnipresent. You know, sometimes I've heard people say, you know, sometimes when I'm out in the woods, you know, I really can worship God when I'm alone. I agree with that. Some of the best worship times I've ever had was with my toes buried in the sand overlooking the ocean. That's a quiet time for me. And I'm telling you, I've, sometimes you can have a more intimate, deep worship experience there than you can in a church. I'm just, I, I know that it's sad, but it's, it's true. Why? Because God's everywhere. It doesn't matter where you're at. You know, the Lord is with you. You know, it's just where he's at. David wrote in the Psalms 139, you can write it down, verse 7 through 10. He said, whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. Therefore, God is not far from any of us. That's, he's, he's everywhere. And I appreciate that so much about him. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. And certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So Paul says we move. We, where we live, we move and we have our being. He's going, look, God is real. God is not made of hands. He's not carved of stone or gold or silver. We shouldn't think of him that way. We shouldn't be trying to worship him in that way because in him we move. We actually have our livelihood, our being even. Every breath, you know, we, there's an old song now anyway, that every step I take, every move I make. I mean, and there's truth in that song because everything we have is from the Lord. Every breath and he quotes their poets even. I like the fact that Paul used a secular poet, actually two of them, because that's where these people were at. And he said, hey, even your own poets have said that we are his offspring. And because we are his offspring, here's what we should not do. For as much then, verse 29, as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the Godhead like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art, and men's devices. We shouldn't think of it that way. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. We are made in the likeness of God. Now granted, we have fallen from that image because of Adam, but we were restored to that image by Jesus Christ. And that's the beauty of the gospel. I want to finish, and I'm going to wrap it up with verse 30, and then when we come back next time, uh, I'm going to pick it up in 30. We'll touch on it a little bit more. So Paul goes on, and he says there in verse 30, he says, in the times of this ignorance, what ignorance is he talking about? He's talking about worshiping God ignorantly. 
And he was talking about them worshiping the unknown God. This time of ignorance, he says, God winked at. He winked at it. But now, but now, commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Change your mind is what he's saying. So often, we have haphazardly, I heard a report that said that it was like 90% of everybody who lives in the United States believe in God. And I said, that very well may be true, that they believe in God, but they do not worship God. The God that most people worship is materialism, things, other people, their animals, whatever. But God? No, I don't believe that for a moment. I find that hard to believe. Because if we were 90% serving God, Christians, wow, this would be one amazing country. And it's still an amazing country, but not in that way, you know. He said, at those times of ignorance, God winked at it. There was a time when God said, okay, okay, you're ignorant. You know the difference between stupidity and ignorance, right? Ignorance means you just don't know. Stupidity means you know and you, you do that dumb thing anyway. That's just being stupid. But ignorance, God winked at it. But now, he said, commands all men, and this was when Paul was speaking, everywhere to repent. We are to change our minds about Jesus Christ. And we need to do that now. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, I pray for those who have worshipped God ignorantly, Lord. All oh, they have claimed some sort of relationship with you, Lord, but you know and they know that their lives have seen no change. They show no semblance of being born again. They show no semblance of the indwelling of the Spirit. Lord, your word tells us that if any have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Lord, I pray that for those who have been ignorantly worshipping, that even now as I'm speaking, Lord Father, you would allow the Holy Spirit to open their eyes, even as the Apostle Paul, before he knew you, as it was scales that fell from his eyes, Lord Father. Unfortunately, Lord Father, as you know, there's people, they live and their lives are usually in turmoil. And yet they're throwing haphazardly prayers in your direction, thinking that somehow things are going to change, but they've never made that one true prayer of repentance. They've never changed their mind, Lord Father. They've never had that godly sorrow that works repentance, Lord, happen to them. Precious one, I'm telling you, if you've never done it, if you've never submitted yourself to the Lordship of Jesus, now is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. The times of your ignorance God winked at, but now he has commanded that you should repent. And I would agree with that. Father, we love you. And we thank you. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.